Good morning. Good to be back with you all. I feel like it's been a little bit of time since I've been here with you. And I know there are many of you I don't know. My name is Rob Sweet. And if you're new to fellowship, the way we do our teaching is a little bit different. We have two primary teachers, myself and Lloyd Shadrach. And uh, we have two campuses here in at Brentwood. And we do live teaching. We don't do video teaching. And so what that means is when I'm here, Lloyd is there and vice versa. But the nice thing is we're in the same series together. So we alternate back and forth, and the two congregations are one church. Uh, But you'll hear from me, and you'll hear from Lloyd primarily, if you're just getting to know us. That's kind of how it works. I hope you've already opened to John's Gospel. You know, we've been in this book now together for, I guess, the better part of a year and a half. We'll finish it in the spring, just after Easter time. And we're going to get to the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, right around Easter. I'm excited about how that's going to flow out. But we're entering this morning into a little five-week mini-series within the series. And it's uh, on the high priestly prayer of Jesus, which is John chapter 17. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll notice almost every word in this chapter is in red. It's the longest continual prayer of Christ that we have in the Scripture. Honestly, I've always loved this chapter, but the more I've dug into it preparing for this um, message this morning, the more my mind has just been blown away by it. Uh, We're going to go to some deep places in the next five weeks in this chapter. It's going to be in a journey together. But I I think if you'll hang with this, if if you'll kind of invest this time in this, the payoff's going to be really significant because although we're going to be contemplating vast and mysterious theological things, it's all imminently practical. And I think we'll see that this morning in our text. So let me start with this little analogy. If, If Imagine yourself maybe spending a wonderful evening with someone or a group of people that you love dearly in, in, you know you're not going to be able to see them for a long time. Maybe they're visiting from out of town. You know, maybe they're moving away, long distance away. And you've got this one last time with them. And you linger over the food. And you, you share about life. And differently than you would with a casual friend. You really pour out your heart. And you say, here's what's really hard for me right now. And here's what's joyful for me right now. And you just share this open-hearted time together, maybe over several hours. And you get to the end of the night. You get to that point where you know the goodbye is imminent. And it's the kind of relationship where the only thing that feels right is to say, can we pray? Can we pray together before we go? Can I I pray for you? Will you pray for me? Can can we kind of enjoy that part of our connection together and go to God and and thank him for this friendship? That's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 17. That's the moment that he's come to with his disciples, whom he's grown so close to over these three years. Imagine if you were God in the flesh. I I don't don't know that we can imagine that, but if you were and you had one last opportunity to speak some words to the group of people that you were closest to, you know, the followers, your disciples that followed you around for three years, what would you want to tell them at the end? Maybe you would think, well, I'm going to give them the key to the universe. You know, I'm going to tell them what's most important. I'm going to tell them like how to engage in life in a way that will lead them to fullness. You know, how to engage with God, you know, these kinds of things. That's exactly where Jesus goes in his prayer. But what I think so amazing about this passage, he doesn't just lean in and talk to them about these things. He lets them in on a conversation he has about these things with his heavenly father. And he includes them in his prayer. So think about that for a minute. This is not just a great teacher praying. 
This is God himself praying to God. <laughs> this is God the Son talking to God the Father. And he does it out loud. He does it in a way that invites the listener in. And, and, and them in the, the first century, and by extension, us. Because we have the words of Jesus in this prayer. And so we're going to hear his prayer. We're going to be ushered into kind of the inner sanctum of the Trinity the communication between Father and Son through, through the, the, the fellowship of the Spirit. And in this moment, the curtain's gonna be pulled back. We're gonna learn some things about God and we're gonna hear him pray, not just about his disciples and for his disciples, but for us, for us. We are in this prayer in John 17. Let's begin where else? At the beginning. John 17, verse 1 is where we're going to go. And I'll see if I can get this on the screen. Here we are. All right. It starts with this phrase in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, okay, those are the only non-red letters, uh, red letter words in the text this morning. Let's talk about that just really quickly. What are these words after Jesus had spoken these words? Well, it's really the, the whole upper room discourse. The whole conversation, Last Supper, that began with him washing the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13, goes all the way through. He shared all these things, told them he's going to go. They'd wept together. You know, he talked about the coming of the Spirit. He'd answered their questions. He'd spent this whole evening with them. And, and, and when he'd spoken these words, now the very last words he spoke to them before the prayer, glance up at chapter 16, verse 33. It won't be on the screen. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then right after that, the prayer. The reason I mention that is because you're going to see in this prayer, Jesus' intercession for the disciples. He's already helping move them toward peace. He goes, you know, you're going to have trouble in the world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He, he in a sense, is, is beginning the work of overcoming the world through his intercession on their behalf. You know, that's what a priest does, by the way. A priest intercedes. He, he goes between God and the people. And so Jesus is taking on the role of the priest, the high priest. That's why we call this whole prayer in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus is interceding for his disciples and for us as well. So let's dig in now to the first sentence of Jesus' prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, in the very first sentence, there are two terms that we need to unpack. And, and if, if you dig down into these two ideas, these two terms, the whole prayer will open up for you. And so we're gonna spend a lot of time on these two terms. The, the first is, is the idea of glory. Now, it's listed here as glorify, and that's mentioned several times. The word glory will also show up. Obviously, it's the same root word. You're going to see the word glory or glorify five times in the first five verses. It's obviously a key concept. We need to understand what it means. The second one, which we'll get to toward the end of the message, is eternal life. So glory and eternal life. Those are the two things I want to talk about this morning through this text. And, and we'll spend the first part of the message on glory, the second part on eternal life. So let, let's start with glory. Jesus says, glorify your son. Well, what, what is glory? Uh, we'll talk about two words in, in Greek, which is what the text is written in here. It, it's the Greek word 
doxa. You might have heard of doxology, or there's some other uh, um, words that, that have that prefix to them. Doxa means greatness, or, or radiance, or splendor. That's the Greek word. Now, there's a Hebrew word I want to spend more time on because I think the context of Jesus' Jewish disciples, they would have been more familiar with this uh, concept. The word kavod. Kavod. Not to be confused with kamod. Like, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. Kavod. I kept thinking that every time I said that when I was writing this message, I was like, it's not, kav- not kamod. Kavod. Kavod literally means weight. So someone, you know, in, in that culture, if someone was, 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 was a, a large individual, you'd say they had kavod, like literally, but more often it was meant a person of substance, a person of reputation, a person of influence, maybe a person of wealth or a person of power, a, a person that you needed to listen to. That person was said to have kavod, their heaviness, their weight to them. It's a beautiful picture. It makes sense in that culture. I mean, even think about their, their currency, you know, you, they exchanged different types of currency that wasn't worth very much, you know, little, you know pieces of, of tin or other things. But, but then when they had gold, you know, the substance, the kavod, the weight, you know, it's this idea. You ever been in a room and maybe it's a, a party for an honored guest and everyone's gathered awaiting the arrival of the honored guest and talking amongst themselves and then the, the VIP arrives, you know, the honored guest arrives and, and you just sort of sense the room shifting toward that individual and he or she walks in. You're feeling their weight, their, their kavod, their glory, so to speak. This past September, Jody and I were invited to go to the induction ceremony of Ringo Starr into the Musicians Hall of Fame, downtown Nashville. Now, that's not our scene, okay? Like, we were kind of like, which one of these people don't belong in this thing? There were all these, like, other musicians that had already been inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame and, like, these really well-known, famous Nashville musicians that, you know, this friend was saying, hey, that's so-and-so and and that's so-and-so. I could just sort of, you know, sense the kavod of these folks as they were kind of walking around the room. But then Ringo Starr showed up, you know. Do I need to say who Ringo Starr is? It struck me here, young people in the room. He's one of the Beatles, like the Beatles, right? He's the drummer for the Beatles. Okay, so Ringo Ringo Starr walks in the room and you immediately knew it. It's like the whole, you know, place gets quiet. Everybody's attention's on Ringo Starr because his kavod is heavier than all the other kavods of these other musicians, you see. That's this idea. Now, Imagine the, the, the glory of God, the kavod, the weight, the heaviness, the importance of God. He's the one that made Ringo Starr. You know, he's the one that created the physics that allow music to be possible. He's the one that made our ears that we can hear the music and our hearts that we can love the music. And, and that's just one teeny tiny little bit of the glory of God. So this is a very significant idea in scripture that this idea of someone's kavod God's glory and so with that in mind look at the request of Jesus the very first thing the very first petition that Jesus says in his prayer to the father glorify your son that the son may glorify you Jesus is asking the father to glorify now what does it actually mean To glorify someone, it means to contribute to their glory, to sort of add to their glory, to honor them, to lift them up, to to 
elevate them. And when you do any of these things, you're adding to their glory. You're adding to their kavod, so to speak. And Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him. But not because he selfishly wants more glory. This is the wrong idea that people often have about God. That God's just up there, like, you know, selfishly demanding us to praise him, to worship him. Notice why Jesus is asking the Father for more kavod, more glory. So that the Son, is Jesus himself, may glorify you, the Father. Would you glorify me, Father, so that I may reflect that glory? That it'll, it'll just sort of bounce right off of me as your image, the image of the one true God, Jesus is, and, and glorify you and lift you up. Now, this is where I want to go a little deep, okay? Because this has been fascinating to me to think about. Jesus pulls the curtain back of the relationship between members of the Godhead. And, and what we find out is that the individual members of the Trinity, you know, God the Father, God the Son in this case, their desire is to glorify one another. Their desire is to elevate one another. Their, their desire is to lift the other up. They're, they're mutually deferential for one another. They're, they're for one another. Isn't this interesting? Now, when we talk about God, we don't usually remember that he's Trinity. I mean, we do theologically, but in every day, you, 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 just, you just think about God as, as singular. God is one, but he's also three. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. So, you know, the, the only way that I know to say it, and, and it's hard to grasp, of course, but the only way I know to say it is that God is eternally one entity, one being, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God. I'll say it again. One being eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God. Now what this means is, and just think about this with me, they live in relationship together. They're a community. Now they're one, they're a unity, but they're also a community. This is fascinating to me. So how do they relate to each other? Well, what Jesus is saying is at least one way, and I've come to believe a primary way they relate to each other, is they're, they're, they're pouring into one another. They're saying, I'm going to glorify you. And he says, I'm going to glorify you. Jesus is saying, glorify me that I may glorify you. And so what Jesus' prayer reveals is something profound. Now, track with me. If, if you're not there yet, Look, look at verse 4 and 5. Let's go ahead and cover these two verses. Jesus, again, speaking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here's what this tells us. From eternity past, the Father and the Son have been glorifying one another, pouring into each other mutual honor, mutual adoration, each of them elevating the other. Now, I, I still think for us, this feels kind of weird. You know, it feels kind of like, uh, it's just, doesn't, I don't know, I don't get it. Why would the, the three persons of the Trinity spend all this energy and time, so to speak, glorifying each other, lifting each other up. Is it because their collective ego needs it? 
Of course not. God needs nothing. The answer to why they would do this is because it's exactly what you do when you love someone. Think about this with me. When, when you love someone, you can't help but glorify them. And we don't use that word. <laughs> but you compliment them. You talk about them. You, you talk to others about them. You say, I, I need to tell you about this person that I've met. Or, you know, I need to tell you about my grandkid. You know, <laughs> pull out your phone, show them pictures. You talk to the person you love about them. You say, you're so beautiful. You're such a good listener. You know, I love the way you do such and such. You can't help it. Now, as humans, when we do this, by the way, our, our motives are never 100% pure. But that's not the case with God. So, deep thought. Picture God this way. A, a trinity... Three persons, one being, whom for all of eternity have existed in this unity of perfect mutual honor and perfect deference to each other and infinite amounts of devotion and esteem and adoration flowing from one to the other. Self-giving, pouring out from one person of the Trinity to another person of the Trinity. What do you call that kind of perfect, unselfish, mutual glorification? The Bible calls it pure love. It's untainted. It's unselfish. It's, it's these individual oneness living together in mutuality and perfect submission and, and glorification of one another. This is so hard for our brains to grasp because we don't know relationships like this. <laughs> Even our best relationships are tainted by selfishness. This is true. The greatest parent who ever lived, whoever that would be, the greatest friendship that ever existed, the greatest marriage the world has ever seen, all these things are mere shadows. They're, they're, they're just tiny little glimpses, tiny little images of the, the true mutual love and beauty that is the triune God. It's important that you see God this way, and, and you'll know why when we get practical here at the end of the message. So here's what amazes me as I've thought about this. If this kind of love is indeed the essence of the Trinity, if you could say, okay, okay, fine. It seems that the Bible is saying that these three persons that mysteriously make one God, they love each other, and they're constantly lifting each other up, and they're deferential to one another, and, and they adore each other, and they're, they're, they're in this. If you can go there with me, and then I want you to take you one more place. If that's true about God, then is that also not true that that type of love is actually the essence of reality? At the heart of the universe is that love. Here's why I go there. This Trinity created all that is. And if the heart of the Trinity is love, perfect, mutual, deferential love, then is not love, in a sense, the thing that is most real? Is it not the center of the universe, so to speak? I heard Tim Keller give a talk about this one time, and his point fascinated me, and, and, and I've always held on to it. He said this, both ancient people and modern people 
have both sort of come to the, the conclusion, the, the worldview, that, that the, the, our universe around is a product of violence. A product of violence. He explained it this way. He said, ancient worldview, you know, if you read all the creation myths of all the ancient religions, they, they all are like the gods battling each other and, and out popped the creation. You know, so like kind of that idea. You know, this god got mad at that god and they kind of had a battle together. That, that's all over the creation myths. So in other words, it's, it's this personal violence of the gods battling each other that, that created what we have around us. You get to, of course, our modern worldview, which is an impersonal violence. It's the Big Bang. It's, you know, balls of flaming gas. It's it's survival of the fittest. If you think about what that is, it's sort of this, you know, systematic, impersonal violence that has resulted in all that we have around us. So both of these worldviews, ancient worldviews, modern worldviews, both say violence is at the center of it all. Keller made this point. Christianity is the only worldview that says love is at the center of it all. That at the very center of all that is, is a God who exists in full, mutual, perfect love. And he created, get this, out of an overflow of his love. He created in order to share that love, you see. And, and to quote Keller, I, I don't want to leave this part out. Uh, he said, if you're not a Christian, why not at least consider getting a worldview that fits your deepest intuitions? In other words, don't you just know in your heart that at the center of the universe, there's got to be love? Because aren't you drawn toward love like, like, like a, an, an insect toward light? Aren't we all? Don't we all instinctively just say, that's what I want. That's what I need. At the heart of reality, you all, this is what the scripture is teaching us. It's a, a community, a triune community that is God who loves each other to such a degree that the very first prayer out of the mouth of Jesus in this text is, Father, glorify me so I can glorify you. And we've been doing this together since before the earth created. And I've glorified you in my life and I've completed the work. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the earth began. Do you, do you see this? This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Now, what does it have to do with us? Everything, everything, it turns out. So now, we've talked about glory. We need to talk about eternal life because this is where you and I come in. Let's go back to the first few verses. Jesus' prayer. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, so track this with me. One of the ways the Father glorified the Son, according to this text, is to give him authority over all flesh. That's what it says. All flesh in this context means all people. It, it's all living beings. Jesus has authority over us. He, he's the king. He's the king. He's the ruler, the true ruler of the world. The Father has given him that authority, so to speak. But notice the purpose of the authority. Jesus does not use his authority over us for his own ends. The purpose of the authority is what? In order to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Of course, him speaking of the Son. 
This is a great little encapsulation of the mission of Jesus. As a fully God, fully human person, Jesus was given authority over us for the purpose of bringing us into eternal life. That's how Jesus uses his authority to bring us into eternal life. And so then you might say, okay, what's eternal life? Jesus knew you were going to ask that question. Verse 3, he answers it. And this is eternal life, that they know you, speaking of the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life. Let's hang out here for a little while. Let's talk about eternal life. Let, let's lean into this definition Jesus is giving, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus, whom you've sent. The first thing I want to point out is what Jesus does not say. He does not say, and this is eternal life, that they go to heaven when they die and live there forever and ever. Although that's perfectly true. That's perfectly true. I'm not saying that's wrong at all, but that's not, what he goes, that's not where he goes here. He says, this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God. He's saying the essence of that eternal life is not just where we dwell or, you know, it, the fact that it's going to last forever. The essence of the eternal life is knowing. Knowing, and, and the kind of knowing Jesus is talking about is a relational knowing. It's not just a, a mental, oh, I've heard of God. Or, yeah, I know some things. I know some theology about God. It's an intimate relationship with God that they know you, the Father, the only true God, and me, Jesus Christ. By the, on, by the way, the only place in the Gospels that I can find that Jesus says his full name and title together. And Jesus, his given name, which means salvation. Christ, the Greek word, is of Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is speaking about himself. That eternal life exists in knowing God relationally, intimately. Now, th this is where this comes together. And y'all, this is where this has been blowing my mind. If you grab onto point one, that the Trinity is in essence a community of mutual sacrificial self-giving love like nothing you and I have ever experienced, but we all crave. And then you grab onto point two, Jesus's mission is to bring us into life that is true life, eternal life that we've all been craving. What Jesus is saying is his purpose is to bring us straight into the community of love that is the Trinity. His purpose is that we might experience the life that we've always wanted, a life where you're fully known, fully loved, fully accepted by God himself. And you're able to enter into this mutual, beautiful, deferential, mutual glorification that the Trinity has been engaging in for all of time. Now, I, I know that's deep. I know that's maybe weird. But I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And, and, and let me show you even more by jumping ahead to, to the end of the chapter, almost the end of the chapter. Because when you see this, I think the penny might drop. Look at verses 20 to 23, and I'm going to abbreviate it just a bit, but I'm going to read most of it. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about us, y'all. He's talking about all of us who will come after these disciples. That they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. What? <laughs> that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you see how this all fits together? Do you, do you see that, that eternal life is actually being known by God and knowing God and, and understanding and experiencing the mutual love that is the Father, Son, and the Spirit? Does it connect the dots to what Jesus has been saying all throughout these last few chapters about when he leaves, the Spirit's gonna come and not just be with them, but be in them? Y'all, when you and I think of eternal life, we usually think of life that starts after we die. That's not what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing God the Son. And that's the kind of life that can start now. And it will last for all eternity. This is eternal life. Eugene Peterson, in, in his paraphrase, the, the message, he, he, he paraphrases it this way. Real and eternal life. Dallas Willard, in his writing, he, he described it this way. The eternal kind of life. What they're trying to get after is, it's not just life for then. It's life for now. Knowing God, relating to God, living in intimacy with God. And, and yes, we only experience it in part now but we'll be in the fullness of glory then. Y'all, eternal life is the kind of life you've always wanted. It's fullness and wholeness and peace and rest and adventure and newness and flourishing and satisfaction and contentment and joy. And what I've been thinking about all week as I've dug into this text is the very life that you and I have instinctively always wanted is the life that God himself has been experiencing in himself from before creation began. And through Jesus, he invites us into it. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I've come so you may have life and have it abundantly. Y'all, he's not talking about more money in the bank. <laughs> he's not talking about so that you have your dream job, so that you find your dream spouse, so that your kids turn out great, so that you have lots of grandkids. He's talking about eternal life, which comes by being intimately connected to the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Now, I know this is like, Maybe way up here, and some of you are like, I, I'm, I don't know that I can grasp this. I, I want to see if we can make it really practical. Number one is, how do you get into that kind of communion? How do you get into that kind of relationship with God? I'm guessing many of the room feel like, I don't think I have that kind of communion with God that you're talking about. You all, this is where we have to look to Jesus as our high priest. This is where we have to be utterly dependent on him for life. Because apart from him, do you think you can possibly earn your way into the communion of love that is the Trinity? 
There is no way apart from Jesus Christ. Each of us is bankrupt on our own. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who know there's no way to accomplish, to achieve, to get into fullness of life that is love apart from grabbing on to me and coming into the presence of God through faith. So that's number one. If you've never put those pieces together, that, that you know, being a part of this is not about getting religious. It's not about going to church. It's, it's not about even believing the right theology. It's about putting your faith in Jesus to give you access to the very heart of God, to the love of Christ, to the love of the Father, through the Spirit that can indwell you, through faith. And it comes through a simple request. Father, would you save me? I'm putting my faith in the Son of God. That's it. That's it. Now, application part two for everybody in the room. You know, that first part was like, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ to get into this community of love that Jesus is inviting us into, fullness of life lies there for you. I'm not kidding. Application number two is for all of us. It's a new year. I don't know if you do resolutions. I stopped because I could never do them. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I always have hopes for the year, okay? And if, you, if you're a resolution person and, and you keep to your resolutions, I'm jealous. You know, <laughs> keep going, man. Don't let me discourage you. But for me, I've had a hard time with it. But I do have hopes for the year. And, you know, my hopes would be I want to become more healthy. I got to get a better work-life balance. I, I need to invest in my marriage. You know, I, I really need to pour into my kids. You know, these things I've been thinking about. Take all of our resolutions and hopes for the year, put them together. What you're going to find are all these common themes that are all saying the same thing. I want to have just a little bit more fullness of life in 24 than I did in 23. I I want my relationships improved. I want my body improved. I I, want to just be a little more full of life in 24. Listen, you all, Jesus is saying there is one path toward life that is true life. He calls it eternal life. And he says, this is eternal life. That they know you, Father, and me, the one that he has sent. So here's my question for you, very very practical. In your pursuit of life this year, what steps will you take toward God? That's it. What steps will you take this year toward God? God. If that's where fullness of life in the universe actually is, what steps will you take toward him? For some of you, like I said, it's a step of faith that maybe you've never taken before. That can start today. For some of you, you just got to start talking to him again because it's been a while since you've really talked to him and you know what I mean. For some of you, you might need to join a group. In, in fact, let me, let me just say this. If you don't have a group of people you meet with regularly where you can talk about your relationship with God, you've got to have that. You, you'll shrivel without it. And here's what's so beautiful about that is, is our communities together, our, our little faith communities together in the big church, but also in these small groups. They're little tiny models of the Trinity. And I don't mean that in, a, in a, any kind of weird way. I just mean that what's being modeled for us is a community of love, of, of self-deference, of, of mutual love together. And, and we have the opportunity to live a little more fully as human beings 
when we image God that way. Do you see what I mean? And yes, that can happen in families. It should happen in families, and, but it should also happen in, in friendships and other groups of people. So Paige shared with you your next steps on that. I can't encourage you enough. Come to that thing next week. Get connected. We've got all kinds of ways for you to get connected in there. All right. The timer disappeared. Oh, no, it went red. I'm a minute over. <laughs> so I need, I need to stop. But you all, come back. <laughs> come back. Because I'm telling you, and, and I know some of you are just visiting, and I'm like, all right, best way to get to know a church, don't just visit it one time. These five weeks, everybody, let's be here for this prayer. Because it's, it's amazing. It's remarkable. And we're just getting started. But let me pray for us. And the band will come out and we'll sing one more song. Bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for preserving this prayer for us. And it feels to me, at least, that we're, we're brushing up against things that are so sacred and, and so profound that we can't fully get our minds around them this, this side of eternity. But I also believe that you've communicated through Jesus' words to us in, in ways that give us enough. And so, Father, may we hear your words this morning and, and may they make their way into our hearts in ways that change us. Would you plant a seed within us of desire for communion with you? Would we, every person in this room who's, who's heard something that stirred them by you this morning, would they say, I will take a step toward God? Whatever that looks like for them, would you help them know what that is? They will take a step toward God. And the last thing I want to say is, is to you, Jesus, thank you for giving up your glory and going all the way to the cross for us. It was our only way in and you did it for us. And we say, thank you for that. Help us to grab onto you. Help, you. help us to allow you to lead us into that deep communion that you experienced with the Father, Lord. And you've given us the spirit so that can be in us. And I just pray that that would be true. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.